Welcome to Michael Easley in Context. For more information, go to michaelincontext.com. Follow Michael on Twitter, at Dr. Easley. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground. Firm through the fiercest drought and storm. Keith Getty, many people don't know how you came to faith in Christ. Well, I grew up in a Christian home. And I had parents who introduced me to life, introduced me to love, introduced me to music, and introduced me to faith in Christ. And so I, I like Christian, um, have that great benefit in life. Um, and, uh, and, and they also, I think the other thing I'm so thankful to my parents for was they introduced me to great heroes. So mm. when they find someone, when they find someone who they thought would pique my imagination, I, I got interested in theology and, and, and apologetics when uh, I was a teenager. Uh, what age? I was like seven, 16, 17. You know, okay. starting to really think. And they introduced me to a man called John Lennox. And so John Lennox was a wonderful friend. And so during university, I, 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 I debated people of various faiths. I also debated a number of atheists of unfaiths. And, and that time was quite challenging in terms, of, in terms of faith. But to have someone like John who was always available was, a, was great. And then a number of years after that, I think when I was, by the time I was 24, he called me one day and said, I want you to, he wrote me an email and said, I want you to hear my niece sing. I think she's young and she's talented. She's, she's still just finishing school. So, so, you know, you're, you're, you're way older. If you could be an older influence on her. And that was Kristen. So, um, so that was, so, so I, 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 I took very seriously the task of keeping other, keeping other men away from her and, and helping her with her life. And, and John, so she came of age, right? And John Lennox has never trusted me since. Never, so. Rightly so. And I will never make the same mistake with my daughters. Do you? Never. Well, it Tell changes, what. doesn't it, when you become a daddy? Yeah, yeah it's funny how your theology changes yeah. when you become a dad, isn't it? My one of my professors said, uh, write your position papers in pencil, gentlemen. <laughs> they will change as you age. Now, when you were young, you're exposed to music early on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what were some of the influences? Uh, well, I, I wasn't I wasn't one of those kind of kids that was brilliant to start with at all. I, 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 wanted, I loved sports. Sport was my love, and I wanted to... I'm a pretty competitive human being, and so I, you know, I love playing sport. And then, unfortunately, I was a really mediocre sports guy. You know, you know that kid in the school choir who goes to all the rehearsals but still isn't very good at the end of the year. That was me at sport. So Charlie Brown, yeah, yeah, yeah that's basically it. And so, but I got into guitar when I was ten, and then, and then, and then piano, and then flute, and 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 so, so my, my teenage years, I would say probably the best best thing is I loved I loved classical music. Um, now, not many teens love classical music. No, I just did though. On I, any I just side of the it. island, no, I mean, I, that's right. But I, I loved classical music. Um, I loved the. Can, can you can you articulate why? Well, it, it was the. I know. I think it was. It's a really good question. I I always loved beautiful melody, classic melody, and um, I think you know, as a flute. I, I was, again, it was good heroes. I I was a young flute player from Belfast, so I was introduced to Sir James Galway, and so you know that kind of thing was you know that he was a hero. So it was, it was good heroes, and then he. He actually, while I was still at high school, he gave me a chance to do some arrangements for him, which which was a break into the music industry. So um, he didn't like my flute playing, though. So that was the only disappointment huh. of the whole thing. So, um, but but I think the influences, as somebody who loved theology, I was into classical music. My parents only let us listen to church music in the house, 
And then, of course, being Irish, I loved Irish and Scottish melodies and sing songs. And, and Did you rebel at any of that? Not crazily. I mean, to be honest, to be from the north of Ireland and to be so into Irish music, it was quite persona non grata. That was, that was, I mean, that was looked down. I was taken, looked on quite dimly. Interesting. Um, because of the, the, the more sort of Scotch, Irish, uh -huh. Protestant, evangelical uh -huh. thing. So that was seen as being quite, 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 um, quite unusual. But, but you know that 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 was my background, and and uh, you know if you put those things in the in, in your in your in your American juicer and, and press press the blend button, you know that's pretty much how my music comes out. It's, it's an influence of those four things, and so you know you be uh, any of us who are creative, whether it's preaching and teaching and writing, or whether it's making music. You know, you your your, your creativity is the combination of your experiences. So I'm thankful that you know I had those experiences. You know. If, Perhaps if I had a more cool background, I might be better writing at pop music, but, but that's not it. You know, <laughs> hence when I try to write pop music, it sounds terrible. When did you come to the States for the first time? Um, I, I visited when I was, I was, I was, I was a conducting student at a school called the Tanglewood School in, in Lenox, Massachusetts. So I was a conducting school, scholar there. And so I spent a whole summer and just getting used to America. I loved it. Of course, it was, it was, it was sort of suburban Boston and uh, suburban Massachusetts. And um, it was a beautiful, beautiful a very, very well-to-do area and all these brilliant kids were there and it was pretty challenging. And so it took me the whole summer to get used to it. Then the next year I came back to visit Tennessee thinking I understood America because I'd been in, you know, suburban Massachusetts. And was, <laughs> so, so I had to tear up that manual and start again. <laughs> yeah, different country. So again, how old were you? That was a 20, 20 and 21. 21, 20, okay. And you go back to Ireland mm -hmm. for how long? We we live we live we we we're, we're kind of students that never grew up. We 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 built a house in on Sweetbriar in Hillsborough Village, so we're right kind of by the universities here in Nashville. And then about June time, when all the students are leaving to go home, we go home to Ireland and we we live in the, we live in the North Coast. We usually spend about three months a year uh, living. Uh, we were a little small house. We I had, which I, um, I had from when we first got married. On, on the north coast of Ireland, so we enjoy that. We we always say we enjoy how Americans work and how the Irish play. The other way around isn't isn't that great. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a pop song. There it is. I, know, right I think there. so. I, There's you, a pop song. You just give me an idea. Yeah, I think it's a country, country song. Country western. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, I think so. There, something about something about the fact that Americans can work and the Irish can relax, and the Irish can't work, work. and the Americans can't relax. Yeah. Maybe maybe I think it's got to be something in, in a red solo cup, and you're there. I, I like it. Nick, so what do you think? <laughs> I think it's got something. I think you should do it. Yeah, you should do it. Um, I need to take a break from hymns. Hymnology. When uh, when I was in grad school, I remember reading this Methodist book, um, and it was comparing things like vertical worship, horizontal, you know, uh, exaltation of the man's condition. Mm. We might simply say it: I, me pronouns versus thee, thou mm. in the King's English. When you think of hymnology and what you're doing, are, are you focused on? doxology kinds of themes, vertical kinds of themes. How, how do we get in the head, your head? Maybe I'm just simple and Irish, but I, as you know, as you look at, as you look at the scriptures, it, it, you know, there's, there's some things that are, there's huge blank pages about. One is what we sing in church. Another one is what, what, what literary form we use. If we take the Psalms, for example, they're every form of literary form and length and, and there's every var variety in that. I think the core, the core, as you read scripture, is number one, God's people have learnt their faith in significant part through what they sing all through history, from the Song of Moses to the Song of Aaron, where one's heritage and genealogy and understanding of how God works in creation and redemption are, are there, through to the book, the songbook, which is the Psalms, the Bible songbook, which is the Psalms, through to the early hymns of the New, New Testament, to the 
to the hymns of the church fathers, to the hymns of the Reformation, to the revivalists. God's people have learned their faith through what they sing. So I think that is at the core for every pastor. Every pastor in America, every pastor in Ireland, every pastor around the world is responsible for the songs that his congregation sings on the Sunday, for the words, for the doctrines, for the truths he's put in, in his congregation's mouths. And if, and if he simply leaves that to what is popular or what is traditional, um, he, he's really, he's really uh, washing his hands and, and handing it over to Wall Street to decide what his church is going to be putting in their mouths. It's interesting, 50 years ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was, I'm sure, a hero of yourself, of yours, uh, Michael, the, you know, even, he would, even when he allowed other people to preach in his pulpit, still chose the hymns because it was so important. Mm, mm. And um, so that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, is, is we write songs for the body to sing. The holy act of congregational singing, you theologians always tell me, is, 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 a, is an infinitesimally small microcosm of what we believe heaven to be. Mm. So the holy act is God's people singing. You know? And so it, I, as a musician, I'm not required, but I, as a musician, have this high privilege of being able to accompany God's people singing, mm-hmm. to add color and beauty to this holy, holy privilege. You know, we were with, we did a leadership lunch in D.C. And, uh, and there was one guy who said, you know, he had just got a letter from um, a missionary who had gone to China. And he said, you know, he, he said, it, one of the joys of our weeks is to get together with the believers and whisper hymns in rhythm. Mm-hmm. Whisper hymns in rhythm. He mm-hmm. goes, but oh, our hearts miss the singing. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what well, you know, the, 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 the huge contrast in that to, to, to the Western world, which has tried to turn music into, you know, a marketing tool. And, and and largely five five notes and fifteen synonyms. Yeah, and largely and largely tried to create God into someone who delights in our praises and is in some sentimental way loving. You know, is 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 to is to oversimplify and ultimately to paint a very untrue picture hmm. of the God of the Bible. When you listen to music, um, and I don't want to just gang up on contemporary Christian music, but when you listen to it, um, what's what what would you like to see improved and what is just wrong? I think the challenge is for church leaders. You know, the church is God's body. The church is the, you know, for, 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 for his own bloody body and for her life he died. So it's, it's the church leaders who the, the, the challenge is there for. You know, the church leaders have to be choosing songs that give people the most big and beautiful and true and enriching and imaginative picture of the God of the Bible. You know, and then us, us you know, that, that that's... That's that's the challenge for church leaders, and then as as musicians, the challenge is to make sure it's beautiful. Many of my many of my dearest friends, and I suspect we share some of them mutually, um, are are always telling me that it has to be sound and it has to be it has to be uh, singable, and, and that's that's kind it's kind of true, but it's actually kind of rubbish as well because it has to be it has to be beautiful. You know, it has to be. You know, my wife and I are going out for a date tonight because it's our last night together before all the Christmas tour chaos starts. It's our last night. Wow. With nothing on, and if I said to Kristen when I got home tonight, you know, we're going to go to this restaurant, and the food, the food is edible, and the and the and the deco, uh, and the walls keep the, the rain out. Do you know what I mean? That really wouldn't be that really wouldn't be the dream. So, so we want to make sure that when all is when all is said about about trying to paint a, a big, rich, and deep picture of the God of the Bible, we also have to do it in a way that is that that fires our imagination and. And makes our and makes our charismatic believer friends put their hands higher, and our conservative friends clench their fists tighter. You know, <laughs> talk to me a little bit about in Christ alone. I know you perhaps get a little weary talking about it. Perhaps you and Stuart, I wrote this, but you wrote more than a handful of verses. <laughs> no, the, the, the first one in Christ alone was really easy. I mean, it was I handed Stuart was my hero. I'm a teacher, my co-writer, and 
in many ways, he was my mentor you know, writing, writing the songs. Um, I handed him this melody and said, I'd love to do a song that goes through the whole life of Christ. That's my dream. And, this, you know, and he came back with this stunning lyric, and we changed a couple of lines, and that was it. So, but didn't you have like thirty verses? That was, that was part of the power of the cross. Was we had seven, oh, seven, seventeen verses. Okay. Yeah, it was over a year and a half, and we stopped speaking to each other twice. <laughs> and uh, <it> was eventually, because <laughs> I, I wanted it to be I, the chorus. I wanted to rise, 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 and go forgiven. Da, 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 da. And he didn't want forgiven in the chorus, and so we like we had a whole. So we ended up making all these compromises, and but it, it's it's worked. It's, it works good, but uh, yeah, yeah, that was that's um, uh, the joy of co-writing. We'll leave it right there. We'll leave it right there. Um, when he, you he's back, usually right. He's usually right. So okay. I'm happy to I'm happy to defer go. to defer. Okay. <laughs> uh, I know it's a hard question, but of all you've written, what do you enjoy singing, leading most? Oh, it's easy. Uh, a song called "Facing a Task Unfinished." It's a new setting we've done of that song. I mean, for me, I think it's always the thing I've most recently done. Okay. You know, and uh, we had a, we had a privilege this year of. Uh, our friends at OMF, who you know, uh, China Inland Mission, Hudson Taylor's organization, mm-hmm. celebrated their 150th anniversary this year. And their theme hymn is this great commission hymn, Facing a Task Unfinished, to the tune of the Church's One Foundation. But they were going, you know, the new generation of young mission, mission, missiologists and church planters play their guitars, and there's too many chords, and it's driving them mad. Like, they want to lie down for a rest. Their hands are so sore after playing the song. So they want to change the song. And so we... I, I, I've never really been a fan of putting choruses onto hymns, but there, there seemed two or three exceptions here because, because number one, the song was about to die if we didn't do something with it. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful hymn if you know it. And then secondly, the song really does need a chorus. It, it, it need, musically, it needs to lift, and there's no personal response. And, uh, and then the third thing about it was uh, we, we were able to do it where they, they were able to keep the copyright and actually do the whole entire thing as a fundraiser for missionary work in China. So, so it's really exciting from that point of view as well. So we, did, we wrote that this year, and it was premiered in Singapore in June. And um, we're doing a global global hymn sing of it in February. February but, but 30 different mission organizations have all ganged together, and we're doing a, a mission sing, sing of it. You know, Where it, where will you host it? It's everywhere. It's all over the world. People okay. are singing it on that Sunday. It's, it's in February. It's a really exciting thing. And then and then our, our new project, which we're doing, which we're releasing next fall, is an album and a tour. But it's a slightly more global sound. So we're trying to readdress our music with a slightly more global sound. And, and write hymns about gospel and missional hymns. Um, John Lennox was in town here last month and talked a lot about the silencing of Christians in the academy, in the media, in the arts, in politics, and across the board. And, and I see it because when I was a teenager, I used to do door-to-door evangelism in my summers. And I don't know any kids now who do door-to-door evangelism in their summers, you know. And uh, so, so it's, it's, it's amazing how that's happened. And, and, the, and sadly, the worship movement has kind of echoed that. You know, the, the revivalist and the worldwide missionary, found, worldwide missionary movement, which had so many hymns about going and telling, that, that whole genre has almost died. And so I think if you don't sing it, you don't pray it, you don't think about it, it's not in your conscience. Mm-hmm. And so the goal is to write a collection of, 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 of gospel hymns with a sense with a sense of the uniqueness of Christ and, and with, the, with, the, with the call to, 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 to evangelize. So, Can the American church uh, move back to hymnology? When you look at the mega well, churches, depends. the emerging, emergent debate is here nor there, but the younger churches... Um, well, it depends how we frame the question. Uh, the question's a good question because culturally and corporately, and we're discussing this, we have a little Bible study group meeting Wednesday mornings, we're discussing it this morning, you know, culturally, you know, when you when when my wife goes to the shop to buy stuff for the house, you know, 
even commerce at every level is trying to get us to buy cheaper things more often that are disposable. And the same is happening in music. And, 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 it's, and it's a combination. It's a combination of a culture that is both, that is, that is both driven by, by immediate corporate need and also, I guess, the media generation as well. And in some ways, uh, and in some ways the, the, the church has played into that. So, you know, it is an interesting generation. I think the gener- it has also largely been defined by a generation who no longer work off classical music. And so for all of those reasons, it's going to be hard. But I think, I mean, we're, we're excited. We're more excited all the time. Um, we live in a generation where I think it's going to be... I, I don't. I don't ask the question: Is it popular first? I ask the question: Is it necessary? And when I think about university and the debates we had with fundamentalist Islamic students, of people of other religions, of people of no faith, and the aggressive approach that they had to Christianity, I am pretty certain that for my children, to be a believer and a fruitful and vibrant and wholesome believer, we are going to have to find. Deep, we're going to have to be deep believers. It's going to be a lot harder, and so. And I, and I think it's ridiculous to expect a generation of people who pray silly songs to actually not only survive and thrive in this generation, but emulate our forefathers who, you know, who abolished slavery and wrote the Brandenburg concertos and discovered the law of gravity and founded Harvard University. Mm. You know? And so if we're going to have those deep believers, it has to be deep preaching. It has to be deep singing. It has to be people who pray deeply. And so there's a need, first of all. Um, and, th- and then after that, I mean, I, you know, I think for those people, I think they will respond well if songs are written well and if and if traditional hymns are are helpful, and um, and we'll see where it goes. I mean, I, I could I could comment on on social movement. I mean, you know, I think churches will for the most part be smaller, so so they'll they'll need more classic songs that are easily sung rather than band driven songs. Um, I could comment on the fact that in twenty years time, in twenty years time, you know, the majority of believers will be over thirty. Mm-hmm. So that means they'll probably want be more of a need and a reaction against you know, but but that, that's all that's all social speculation ultimately. I think it comes down to what is it that we need. We act on what we need, and if we're running against history, so be it. In the exposition world, um, where you have an affinity, that's my training. Um, most churches have moved far away from teaching the scripture. It's six how tos, or it's altruistic kind of messages, or right. I don't even know what to call them. But to find a church that's teaching through uh, the book of Revelation, uh, the book of Daniel, the book of Genesis, we just finished the life of Abraham, uh, very rare. Mm-hmm. And what we find in the Nashville area, which as you well know, is saturated with good churches. We find the people that come to our church come because we're opening the Bible and teaching it. Same could be said for good hymnology. Yeah, I think I think it's st- still slightly behind, though. I mean, but I, think, but I mean, the the mindset that agrees with your earlier statement about a deeper faith, a deeper yeah. a deep understanding of theology, an integration of worldview, that mindset is going to have to go look for that. That's exactly right. And I mean, when we were sixteen, there was a group of us. I had a group of friends. We were all as you know as, as cocky and annoying as each other. We started to go out to you know Christian events largely to get girlfriends. And we were sixteen, and we and we got really involved in lots of you know contemporary worship, and we loved it, and all that kind of stuff, and it, and it had an important place in our lives. But the interesting thing was, between 16 and 22, um, six of the guys in that group decided to become pastors. And two of them were at Oxford doing maths, one was at Oxford doing the- and law, one was at Cambridge doing theology, and they all gave up potential careers to become pastors. Mm-hmm. None of them are pastors in churches of larger than 200 people now. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but by the time they got to 22, they wanted to sing deep things about the Lord. You know, it, it was a natural, it, mm-hmm. was a, it, was a, it was as natural as breathing. I, I would parallel it to, you're, you're familiar with the Valley of Vision. Yeah. We both love the Valley of Vision. Yeah. And when you read those prayers compared to the way the average evangelical fundamental Bible-believing pastor prays, it's yeah. probably not too dissimilar than our observation of contemporary Christian music. Yeah. Yeah, and, and going back to the Lloyd Jones, I mean, even when oh, Lloyd Jones yeah. when Lloyd Jones had guys preaching in his pulpit, he still did the opening prayer because he understood that the prayer and the music, what you sing, actually have such a profound effect in your devotional. And life. he wrote those. I mean, they were yeah, they yeah. were transcribed and thought through. And yeah. uh, but the depth of prayer, I, I find it fascinating. We have a small group in our home every Sunday night, and I give them a little book called "The Handbook to Prayer" by Ken Boa, mm-hmm. and I say for ninety days, this is your homework. It take you 10, 15 minutes every morning. Do it as a couple, do it individually. But for 90 days, I want you just to go through this little prayer book. And it's just scripture mm-hmm. with a few bullets on, you know, pray for these things based on the passage you've just read. And Keith, the discipline of doing that is extraordinary. A, because they pray the same 15 words over their coffee, over their lunch, if they pray. Mm-hmm. They pray the same, you know, pablum at night, if they pray at night. And just getting them to look at the scripture. What does the word of God, I mean, how much of it is prayer? Set aside the Psalter. How much of the scripture is just prayer? Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1 and 3. So all that to say, um, the I don't want to be too unkind, but the dumbing down of our prayer life, the dumbing down of our exposition, the dumbing down of our singing, where are we? I mean, what what what's you say you say the church leader has to be the one to turn that around. Yeah. You know as well as I do, there are music pastors and there are staff and musicians. But the church and, leaders are their bosses. <laughs> That's I under. I mean, I, I mean, it's funny when we, you know, we've it's when we tour. We, we, my wife and I give twelve weeks a year to touring. Where my wife's primarily a mother, and I'm primarily a songwriter. She does a little bit of songwriting, and I even do a little bit of fathering. That's good. But um, but uh, this uh, is good. But, uh, <laughs> but we travel twelve weeks a year, and I mean, it, it, to us, it's two categories, and um. When we do our own concerts, we got these fantastic legal documents that we get signed, and that to keep to give us as, as much control as possible of 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 these these sort of significant events. Um, and then when we appear in somebody else's church, the rule is you're my boss, you know. So I, I have a fairly strong I've always had a fairly strong belief that when you're when you're serving in a church, you're serving in a church, you know. So it doesn't matter if I rehearse something, if I'm so excited about my favorite song, if the choir have practiced all day, if if the pastor decides to do something different, that's 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 the way it goes. Um, and when I'm preparing, when I'm when it's my turn, when it's our turn to lead in our church and down in in Hillsborough Village in Nashville, you know, we always send the songs and the lyric sheet to our pastor in advance. Say, are these are these along the lines of what mm-hmm, you're mm-hmm. what you're wanting? And and it was the same when we were with Alistair, and then when we were in when we were in, in our, our previous church back in Europe as well. So so I, I, I kind of I have a fairly strong. I have a fairly strong conviction that if, if the pastors are not saying, are not leading the vision, nobody's going to follow. So that's the challenge. So encourage the pastor out there who's got a band or who's got a, let, let's just call it what it is, a pretty nominal bench in his uh, of, of music repertoire of talent in his church. You mentioned yeah. your friends with churches of 200. Yeah. They're not in Nashville, Keith. They don't yeah. have ABC session players, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, session players in their audience. Or pros who are happy to serve Christ on the weekend. Yeah, well, I mean, here's we did our, our last hymn tour. 
was in spring. This film was one in the fall, but the one in the spring was interesting. The two churches with the best singing by quite a distance. Although there was, there was several churches with really outstanding singing, so it's not meant to sound detrimental, but the two that stood out congregational singing-wise were one called Brooklyn Tabernacle in, 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 in Brooklyn, New York, and, sure. and one called Capitol Hill Baptist in Washington, sure. D.C. So that's, that's, what you, that's, basically an, that's basically an Anglo-American Reformed Baptist church and a and a and a and a, tell Mark you said that. And, a, and, a, and a Puerto Rican and a Puerto Rican Pentecostal right, church. Right, right. Yeah. Um, you know, okay, with three hundred and fifty people in their choir who audition and pay their own way, and who you can listen to on an escalator in Hong Unbelievable. Kong. Unbelievable. And who you can, you can listen to on an escalator in Hong Kong, and 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 at a presidential inauguration, and then Mark, who has basically got either no music, or acoustic guitar, or piano, or when it gets really crazy. A piano, piano, and acoustic guitar. Um, so the the point is this: okay, those two churches are in, are in highly gifted areas with highly gifted pastors. Yes. Uh, so, but but if you take that away, the music couldn't be any different. Do you know what I mean? The music couldn't be any more different. One is as simple as you can imagine, and one is as complex as you can imagine. And um, but the point is, the pastors of those churches. First of all, I believe, although they're very different and probably wouldn't be at events together, they're they both. They, both those churches are pastors who believe that 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 let living people sing. Dead men don't sing. There are people who are excited about the gospel. There are people who believe in congregational singing, and who preach the importance of it, who correct it when it isn't sung well, and who are excited mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I mean, and, and I'm 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 an instrumentalist. You know, I like to think that I'm important. It makes me feel good. But the fact of the matter is. God's people singing is the important bit. So the first question that has to be asked after a Sunday service is, "How did my people sing?" Hmm. Every other question, every other question is 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 so secondary. It's not even funny. You know, Richard Allen Farmer. I don't. Uh, Richard's a dear friend, African American, uh, gifted musician, and uh, he would lead these different conferences. He sits at a at a keyboard and sings hymns and leads hymns, and he will stop and he can get away with it in these white audience contexts and he yeah. will say, he'll just stop playing and he'll go, do you realize what you just sang and how you just sang it? <laughs> and he'll take, I call it a mini exposition, like three minutes. He'll expound the hymn. He'll tell a little backstory. He'll explain how it should be sung. Yeah. It's remarkable, Keith. And yeah. then when he resumes, of course, volume goes up, you know, 20 dB, everybody yeah. starts singing, they're engaging in it. And I've often thought it, the courage of, of and he's a traveling guy. He, he's a guest mm-hmm. in these largely white audiences, not exclusively. I mean, to be politically incorrect by saying that, but in any event, they follow. Mm-hmm. They remarkably follow. And just because he took a minute to make a little fun at them mm-hmm. and say, wait a minute, we're singing to the God of heaven, to the God of our universe. And what are you singing? What lyrics are you saying to him? Why are you saying to them? When you, when you, compose and write do you have in mind the congregant yeah that's it that's a bit i mean and you know that that's i mean obviously i write like i told you in a very specific style which is consistent with my upbringing and um, so i'm aware that you know my style is just one one of the many styles that are legitimate and work well for congregational singing but yeah that's that's that, that's that's all i'm thinking about is how, how will the congregation sing this can um, you give me similarly with arranging or playing or playing in the service? Mm-hmm. How do I best play in a way that helps them sing good? You know, do you have a theology of 
music. When when you start to write these words, are you coming from a grid, theological grid? What I'm trying to accomplish, communicate. It's, yeah, it's called the Bible. <laughs> it's called Jesus. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, well, well, yeah, always because it's it's it, what we sing is so important. I mean. It's interesting. Obviously, I don't agree with someone like John Calvin in church music because he didn't let instruments play at all. But one of the interesting reflections is that Calvin Calvin wrote hymns. And although he was a somewhat autocratic leader, he never, ever let his churches sing his hymns because he wasn't sure we were allowed to sing hymns. So he only had the Genevan Psalter, which we got the praise God from whom all blessings flow and these things from. But, but... And the funeral dirges, the, the accomplishment. Yeah. Oh, oh, they're horrible. Yeah. But the point is, the point is, he what we sing in church is so important that John Calvin wasn't even convinced that his theological interpretations were good enough. You know, was so it the, was so, it the Trinity hymnal, the, the old Trinity hymnal that had no titles, and they were largely the Psalms rewritten for a melody. I don't know. Yeah, it's, I don't uh, know. It's, it's I forget the date in the state. It's called the Trinity hymnal, oh, yeah. and. Um, and they had a thing about titles that you don't you don't put a title on a song. Oh, really? Yeah. Who knows? Wow, that's knows? a new one. That's a new one to me. But but I, I find it striking that we can argue about people vote with their feet when it comes to sermons. They yeah. either like Alistair or they don't. They either like you know someone or they don't. What is the one hope you have for um, hymnology in the future? I'm I'm not there to champion hymnology like 1500 and 19 you know 16th and 19th century hymnology. Okay. That's not uh, the issue. Re- re- rephrase the question. Uh, yeah. What what's your one hope for, for congregational singing. congregational singing? The way you think and write, and when you think you mentioned your kids, I'm with you on that. Yeah. I think our it's over. I mean, the way we do church and worship is over. In the next three decades, unless well, God I, intervenes and changes major hearts in our country, yeah, yeah. My, my colleague's opinion is going to get worse. We're going to be smaller. We're going to be in home churches. We're going to be hiding, perhaps. Who knows? If that was the case, no matter no matter what our future is going to be, let me restate it that way. When you think down 10, 20, 30 years from now, what do you want to leave? Sure. Well, I'll put it another way. You, okay. you say everything's over. And I was, I, was some, I was with another guy in Nashville recently, and he said, you know, you were just born one generation too late. If you'd have been born one generation earlier, you could have been far more successful and he, quanti- well, and he quantified it whatever way it could have been interrupt you there. I, I, my, I, I, my argument is we were born for such a time well we're my, here now my argument for a is reason. i could never ever have wanted to have been born in a different generation we we live in a generate we live in the very first media global generation where the, the world is flat um we live in a generation where there are more christians in the world than at any point in history four and a half continents of the world christianity is growing and in the one and a half continents that you and I come from, there is still an articulate Christian witness in every city. Mm-hmm. And yet the average Christian knows less about the Bible than the average secularist from the West in 1950 mm-hmm. because of education. Um, the average evangelical knows less Bible stories than that. So we live in a generation where it is absolutely critical that if we do not, in as many possible ways, build deep believers, we've got serious problems. Um, but at the same time, we have this amazing opportunity uh, to build, to build that. I wrote a, a folk hymn in the year two thousand. You know, it's sung around, it's sung in pretty much every language, and 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 by depending on which publisher you listen to, between fifty and hundred million people sing it on a Sunday, which articulates what um, we understand about the God of the Bible. And this is from somebody who wasn't smart enough to become a pastor to teach those things as a pastor. Mm. Um, so, so. I couldn't imagine a more exciting generation to be alive in. And, and as we look to a world where 
where in, even in the West, churches will be smaller, believers will be more serious, congregations will be older. Mm-hmm. I think they're going to get very weary of a lot of what's around. It, there couldn't be a more exciting generation, I think, to be alive and to be able to present to believers this, the unsearchable riches of Jesus through the souls of the saints. We've been talking to Keith Getty. Keith, thanks for your time. Thanks for coming into the studio and uh, blessings on your upcoming tour. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Michael Easley in Context. Jesus died.